Well, you can um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verse 18, and we'll also be in 1 Timothy. So those two passages, if you want to look those up, and I'll read those in a few minutes in the midst of the sermon. But today we're going to be um, learning and thinking and actually praying for churches. Recently, I went to the funeral visitation of a, for a dear friend's father. And um, going to funeral visitations is always a sad time. It's a grieving, time of grief, um, as well as hope if they're in Christ. But this one felt particularly sad because it was traumatic. Um, he had died in a fire. And so um, when that happens, there's always the question, you know, was there a fire alarm? Was it working? Did he hear the alarm? And why didn't he get out? And so, you know, there's that unresolved angst because um, those alarms are meant to wake people up. And when they heed them, they're supposed to help them um, lead to escape. And so it was really... um, I just I found myself thinking about alarms and how important it was to heed alarms. Well, back um, last fall, September 17th, it was a Saturday morning, and I woke up, and um, if you lived with me, you would know that I like whiteboards. And I had these thoughts, and I quick grabbed a whiteboard and um, <clears throat> my pens, and I started writing down my thoughts, because I just woke up with a great sense of alarm in my spirit. And the first thing that had come to mind as I woke up was Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. That verse was on my mind As I woke up that morning, so I wrote that verse down. Then I had the sense, pray and fast for 21 days. And very clearly, pray for the state of the church, pray for the state of the nation, pray for the state of the world. This was Saturday morning. I wasn't expecting to have the alarm bells going off in my mind. Then I wrote on my whiteboard, the nation and the world need the gospel. And they're somewhere between apathetic and opposed. Then I wrote down, the church has the hope that the world needs, but it's not in good shape for a variety of reasons. And then I just started listing what was coming to my mind. Apathy, being asleep, infighting, polarization, being content with church attendance and traditions instead of the thought that um, I go to church rather than we are the church. Um, Other things that came to my mind that were concerning about the state of the church. Biblical illiteracy, lacking vibrant, intimate relationship with the Lord. Some are fearful and shy and timid, and we have a mission and a great news to share. Others are deceived. They're not following the authority of Scripture in one part of their lives, and so therefore it invites confusion in all parts. Another thing I wrote down was people are living in sin and hypocrites don't make good evangelists. Um, Self-focused, distracted from the mission, burned out fatigue. 
Now I say this to just say these are the things that the Lord brought to my mind that morning. And I feel like it was those places where mercy would be drawn. Right? Just like what Bill talked about. It wasn't in a condemning, accusing way, but it was just like the Lord's heart was hurting for the state of this church. So I shared these things with Pastor Dave, and he and I began to pray about what might the Lord be saying about fasting and praying. And in December, we sensed it was time to call the church to a season of fasting and prayer at the beginning of the year. So as a church, we began to fast and pray. And um, January 21, another alarm went off. Pastor Dave and Mark were down in North Carolina attending the Dunamis Fellowship International Meeting. And at that meeting, one of the pastors was giving the morning devotional. And he shared some statistics from some research that was done by the Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research. And um, it was 2022 State of Theology Survey. It was posted on Christianity Today, um, an article actually posted two days after I woke up from that alarm back in September. I didn't know about the article and the research that was done. But let me tell you that they found what they found was really alarming. Um, A significant number of American evangelical Christians embrace false beliefs. And here's a few examples. 56% of the respondents believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. 56%. 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is not a creation. He is God. affirm that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 57% agreed to the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And 60% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. And so they would not say that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-majestic with the Father and Son. All right, these are statistics. These are findings from research from Christians, professing Christians in our nation. So today's message is a response to an alarm that's gone off several times recently for us, and it is a call to pray for the state of the church. For some, you may not be surprised by what I've just shared, and for others, you may be in complete shock. But my sense is that the Lord wants to use just a simple teaching this morning to help lay a framework for how can we pray for the church in this hour that God so dearly loves. And so I want to ask the Lord to just bless this um, sermon. And so, Lord, I pray that as I share your word and expound on the teachings of the historic church, Lord, I ask that you would um, cause our hearts to be concerned for what you're concerned about. And Lord, would you help us to pray in faith and confidence that you will work 
and that you'll send your Holy Spirit in grace as we pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to look at a couple of Bible verses that you've looked up. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says this, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That means any darkness, any um, powers of darkness, even death itself, will not overcome the church. And then 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, if you want to flip over to that. This is um, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, and he had just talked about um, qualifications for overseers, leaders in the church. And he concludes that section by saying, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. So what is the church? From these two verses, we can see that um, Jesus established the church, and it's actually the body of Christ on this earth. The church, we can see, is not going to be overcome no matter what pressure comes against it or what culture is doing. The church is God's household. What does it mean that it's God's household? The church is God's family, his beloved family. And the church is the household of the living God. So it's not um, some far off dead something, but the house of God is the living God, living Lord, all powerful, all knowing, ever present. And the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So pillar is a support and a foundation is a secure base. And there is truth and it's Jesus himself and the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus. And so the church, Jesus established it and he uses the Holy Spirit, chose that word church. And in the Greek, it's ekklesia. It's used 118 times in the New Testament and it's a word that ecclesia that the New Testament Christians would have recognized, but we might miss part of what that means if we weren't familiar with how it was used in that time. Ecclesia was first used in writings in Athens, and um, it referred to a prestigious assembly of Athens citizens who would regularly meet to discuss civil matters. And at these meetings, they determined laws, they debated and formulated policy, they ruled in judicial matters, they elected leaders, and they made decisions sometimes about who needed to be banished from that area. It was a great honor to be invited to be a member of the ecclesia, of that set-apart assembly. And the Holy Spirit used that word, to represent the church. The church is a special assembly of people who've been called and chosen by God. And to belong to the church is an honor and a position of spiritual power. The ecclesia, the church, have specific assignments based on where you are. There's the overall general assignment to go and make disciples. But you're in specific context 
and they're intended to be a brilliant light in the midst of spiritually dark and troubled towns and cities and regions. And so the ecclesia, the church, a set-apart people, they work together, they deliberate about things that are going on, they make judgments, and sometimes they even have to set people out for the purpose of the light shining brightly. Our church confessions help us to understand the church a little bit more when we are thinking, what is the church? What marks the church? Did each of you get one of these handouts as you came in? Does anybody need one? If you do, if you need one, raise your hand, Daniel. I see a few hands. So, all right. So I've got some extra reading material um, for you. So we're not going to go through word for word all of this. But the confessions, raise your hand if you still need one. Who else? A couple in the back? All right. The confessions of the church. Um, the church have these written, and they're to re- they believe, we believe, that they represent the Bible correctly and accurately. And it's what we, it's our doctrine that we say, this is what we believe the church, the Bible teaches. And so, um, for years, this is what the church has confessed about the church. And so, the way I'd like to go through this, um, from the Belgic Confession, this page one, excerpts from Article 29, the marks of the true church. I'd like um, this side of the room, this side of the room, to read it out loud. And then when we get to the other side, the other column, we'll have this side read, okay? So this side, let's read together about the marks of the true church. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church for all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel It makes use of the pure administrations of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. Now this side. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on humans more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, 
and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. All right. So the marks of the true church, the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and it practices discipline for correcting faults. All right. Now, the catechism is another one of the church's confessions and teachings. And if you turn to page two, it asks some more questions that kind of stay on this exact same topic about what is the church and how does it function in this way. And so I'm going to um, ask the question 83, and then I'm going to invite you all to read it. All right? So question 83, what are the keys of the kingdom? All right. Now I want you all to listen as I read um, this question. I'll read the question and answer for 84. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the commands of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them. God's judgment both in this life and in the life to come is based on this gospel testimony. And so we can see that when the church is um, proclaiming the gospel and the fullness of the gospel, what it does is it assures every believer, oh, praise the Lord, my sins are forgiven. What good news. But also for those that listen and they reject, it closes the kingdom of God to those that continue to stay in their sin and reject the, the gospel, reject Jesus and the offer of eternal life. Now, this goes on and talks about in um, question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? And I'm going to um, ask you all to answer that question by reading 85 out loud. Let's do it all together as a church. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors in evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions. Such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. 
Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. The preaching of the gospel, Christian discipline, these are things that every true church, when you're looking for a church or when friends ask you, how do I pick a church? Or maybe you've got family members that move to a different area. Now you know there's marks to look for. There's things to look for. It reminds us of what the church should actually be doing. Now, this is not a popular concept because people in our culture don't want to exclude anybody. And they, they don't really even, like our culture doesn't even want to admit that there is any absolute truth. And so the church, the true church, has a responsibility to say there is truth. And the truth is that there is a king. And he came and he offered his son Jesus to pay the price for our sins. And so um, if you believe that and you submit to him as the Lord of your life, you can be saved. Not just for now, but for eternity. But there is a coming judgment. Now all these things, I'm going to ask you to just move the slides along. Um, Maybe, yeah, we've covered that three marks of the church. Let's move to the next one. Um, Really, the, the gospel preaching and also discipline is looking at this full spectrum of the gospel. And so as we think about this, the full, pure, where it says pure preaching of the gospel, it's preaching the whole kingdom of God. It's not focusing just on the cross, though that's the pinnacle. But if we just say Jesus is Savior, but we don't teach people that Jesus is Lord and that they have a position in his kingdom and a responsibility, a role, a wonderful role, then we're setting them up to like make a decision but then live any which way they want to. And if we really don't believe that Jesus is coming back again to judge the living and the dead then we're not teaching, we're not implementing discipline because, well, it really doesn't matter. But the church has a responsibility to help people see that the way you live matters because there's going to be a time when Jesus comes back and everything is going to be exposed and there's going to be great rewards for those who have been faithful and for those who have lived on their own and haven't given any thought at all, and there's no fruit to their life, there's going to be a reckoning. All right. Christian discipline. You can put the next slide up. Christian discipline is nothing but applying the gospel to life. Only churches that really don't believe that Christ saves us from everlasting damnation neglect church discipline. That's what one commentator said about our teachings. And some commentators, as they think about church discipline, they said actually the most candidates for church discipline are those that are lax or indifferent. And others who need discipline are the immoral 
and those promoting unbiblical teaching. Well, that really got me thinking, the lax and the indifferent. Discipline? I mean, do we even really hear the word discipline very much anymore in the church? And yet, if we realize that what discipline is, is an act of love, of trying to help people be formed and shaped into the image of Christ, then of course we would be having those loving conversations. Apathy and indifference in any relationship is serious. If you're in a marriage and you're apathetic and different towards your spouse, that's an issue, isn't it? That's a big like red flag concern. We're in a relationship, church, with God, with Jesus. We're his bride. And so if there's apathy and indifference and lackness, when we think about the catechism, those of you that know the catechism, the, they changed the headings to sin, salvation, and service for three S's to help us remember it. But it used to be misery, deliverance, and gratitude. But either way, if we're not living in gratitude, if we're not living in loving service and in vibrant relationship, then it's similar to like if you had no appetite and you were tired all the time, it's a physical symptom, like maybe something's wrong. There's something unhealthy. Well, in the same way, if you're feeling lax and very indifferent about Jesus, if you don't wake up in the morning going, God, I love you. Now, not every day is the same. But you know what? Generally, if, if God isn't who we most long for and want to spend time with, there's something unhealthy. And rather than ignore that, we should even have self-discipline to just say, what is wrong? And maybe speak to somebody and say, I'm, I need some structure in my life. Help me. Would you help me? Think, would you pray for me? Would you help me in this area? of turning towards God, making him who I desire most. Church discipline has three levels, and I thought this was interesting. There's self-discipline, there's mutual or peer discipline, and then there's official church discipline by those that are leaders. Self-discipline is just really, like if you were going to run a marathon, you'd have a plan. If we're going to walk with the Lord, Having a plan is helpful. And so that's an act of self-discipline and engaging things that, like, are helpful for that and turning away. Like, during the um, fasting, those 21 days of fasting, I think, Carolyn, you said, I've made some changes. You know, I've cut some things out that I'm thinking are helpful. Maybe I'll just leave those out. That would be an act of self-discipline, of just cutting some things out of life in order to focus on the Lord. Mutual and peer discipline is having honest conversations, saying, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me? Or I know people that say, I'm going to have a partner and I'm going to share my struggles and ask them to ask me about that once a week. And then I'll ask them about theirs so that we can encourage and have some accountability. That would be an example of mutual or peer discipline. I think we'll see that in base camps where we're going beyond the surface conversations and really um, encouraging each other in our walks with the Lord and being on mission. And then also with the gospel tool and those Bible study groups um, where you're life on life. And then official discipline, the church leaders, and you can go ahead and um, 
think about what I read about 85, but really church discipline also has levels. It has like initial conversations. These are our care elders that do this for us. Um, we are so thankful for you, our care elders, Brittany, um, Ken, Dane, and Rebecca, who's not here. They, do you know that they all have a list and they pray for each of them have assigned people in our congregation. They pray for the youngest to the oldest. They pray for you regularly. They are sensing a shift that rather than always just focusing on if there's somebody that's particularly unhealthy, let's work on preventative health by having more meaningful conversations. And so if they ask you about your um, prayer life or, you know, like your devotional life, or if they ask you about lifestyle choices, um, they're doing this as a representative of Christ because they care and they want you to be healthy. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We should welcome it. And I am so grateful that our care elders, they are, they love us because that is the intent of discipline is never with the hope of excommunication. It's always like the chosen. I, have you watched the chosen? No. Well, they have this at the beginning of the movie. They've got these fish that are all gray. And then one by one, they start to turn aqua and turn and go the other way. And it just made me think about how the, you know, when we're called, we, we start to follow Jesus. And so our care elders are just trying to get us, making sure we're swimming in the right direction, right? Turn, just pointing us towards Jesus over and over and over again. Discipline is a sure signal of Christian love. All right. So. When churches neglect the preaching of the gospel or when they neglect discipline, and remember, the church is the people, okay? So when we as a group of people neglect either one of these, we're meant to be the household of the living God, a pillar and foundation of truth. And when we start to neglect either one of these, we don't shine brightly. And we actually can start to cooperate with the kingdom of darkness. And I want to give one example as just an anecdotal um, reason why I think that the church needs prayer. I've given you a lot of reasons with all those, um, the survey findings. But recently, Pastor Dave and I have each had the opportunity to have conversations with or counsel people from other congregations, other ecclesia, other groups And um, in their churches, they have either a pastor or counsel who is not holding to a scriptural understanding of human sexuality. Well, what that's doing then for them and their churches is it's causing a lot of questions and it's causing a lot of confusion in these churches. And so instead of going to the scripture as the plumb line for truth, remember the church is supposed to be the foundation and the pillar of truth, instead of going to the word, they're having listening circles. They're hearing everybody's stories, and they're elevating that over scripture. Members are being deceived, or they're at risk of being deceived. The parents don't know what to teach their children and youth because they're hearing mixed messages from their church. And what's resulting is people that want to hold to the truth they're forced to leave the church. 
they're forced to leave relationships that they've they've worshipped with people for years. They love the people in the church, and yet it's not a safe place. It's not a place that's teaching the truth anymore. And it really creates an unsafe place for somebody that has um, tendencies towards being like same-sex attracted. If they're looking for hope and help, and they go into a church where people have mixed opinions and they don't know what they believe and anything goes, they aren't getting the hope of the gospel. And so, as you heard me say, when I went through that list of things that people believed, Christians believed, and over half of them thought that Jesus was just a good teacher, well, if they think Jesus is just a good teacher but not God, then his word is not being held up and respected. It's like a five-alarm fire bell is going off in my heart and my mind right now about the church and the condition of the church. In my prayer plan this week, I ran across this question that really impacted me. Is the level of our prayer matching the urgency of this hour? God's good design for the church, for the ecclesia, is to be a beacon of light and I hope you will take that contemporary testimony, pages three and four. Don't look at it right now. Take it home. Read it. It describes what the church is supposed to look like. I hope you'll turn it all into prayer. But section 34 says, in the new community, referring to the church, all are welcome. The homeless come home. The broken find healing. The sinner makes a new start. The despised are esteemed. The least are honored. And the last are first. Here the spirit guides and grace abounds. I know that's true. You know that's true because that's us. And the church has welcomed us. And we praise God for his grace and his Holy Spirit. The Lord has the power to strengthen, to heal, to help an unhealthy church. Our God is the one who heals blind eyes, who strengthens feeble knees, who looks at a valley of dry bones and calls it to life. And the Lord said that if my people call by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Our churches need discipleship. Our churches need to preach the full gospel. Our churches need to re-embrace and welcome church discipline, whether it's our own self-discipline, mutual discipline, discipline by our leadership. Because if we're concerned for the world and if we're concerned for our nation, then the place to direct our prayers is to pray for the church, to be that beacon of light and hope that God's designed her to be. So let's pray. Lord, we hear the sounding of the alarm today, and we know that you care about the health of your church and the pressures. You told us that the gates of Hades would try to press against. And so, Lord, we we know that you warned us, and you also gave us a way to call on you and that you would send your grace and your Holy Spirit. 
so that those forces would not prevail against your church. And so I pray that you would help us now to pray. And Lord, we pray expecting that you will work and that we will be a vehicle of hope for the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn in some little circles around you. And there's going to be four prayer points up on the slides. We're going to pray for the pure gospel preaching and pray for this church. Pray for any churches that come to your mind. You know, we've got our classes. We've got regional churches around that we're connected with. Or maybe you've got a church in some other state or even some other country that comes to your mind. But let's pray these things for gospel preaching, for protection against false teaching, for discipleship, and for the gospel tool, that that tool that other churches are starting to use, and then um, commitment to discipline. All right? So I'm just going to invite you to... Turn in some little prayer circles, and let's pray for the church.